would invite you to turn with me to the book of Titus chapter 1 as we consider Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 9 in a message that we have entitled things that are wanting things that are wanting the word wanting means lacking or needed something that is crucial to have we begin reading in verse 5. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. We resume our study through the book of Titus today, and this is again an epistle that Paul wrote to one of his sons in the ministry. Paul was a mentor to this man. He trained him and took him with him, and this was one of his apprentices, if you will, a man that he had spent a good deal of time with in his life. He writes Titus this book, this epistle, to encourage him and to instruct him in the work that he is to do. As he has been left by the Apostle Paul, in the island that is referred to here as Crete. And as we talked about last week, this is the largest of the Greek islands. It was some 130 miles long, and at its average width was about 20 miles wide. It was a very long but narrow island, and it was full of cities, and it was Titus' responsibility to travel through this island and constitute churches and where he found believers, where he would find God's children, he was to ordain people, ordain men to see about the work of the ministry. Now you find this pattern a lot in the New Testament, in the Gospels and also in the book of Acts where men will be sent into a city, they will find people there who are receptive to the message they will stay with those people and use that location as a central point where they will begin to evangelize and draw people to. You had many times house churches in that day, and you'd have a region, a city, full of individual houses of people that believed. And from this grew into what we have today as our church locations, a place where all of the believers in a region come together And they hear a message, they worship God with their singing, they pray. Titus has been left in Crete. Paul has appointed him, as you notice in that first verse we read, unto this work. He is to go, he is to preach, he is to evangelize, he is to constitute churches, but specifically, he is to ordain men to preach the gospel. And so this is a very crucial work that we want to talk about today. Now, again, Titus is a book that's rich with doctrinal truth, but also practical instruction. What was the doctrinal truth that we considered last week? Every point we 
made last week could have been a message in and of itself. God that cannot lie has promised eternal life to us before the world began. That's a great doctrinal truth, a great eternal doctrinal truth. God, before the world began, did elect His people to save them. He chose them, and He would send His Son into the world to die for them and to save them, and they will be with Him in glory. Those that have faith possess the faith of God's elect, as we notice from verse 1. And we have a great hope, an anticipation of eternal life that we will have with God after this world is destroyed. And lastly, as we considered in the past message, God has manifested all that He's done for us through preaching. He's let us know about what He has done for us through the preaching of His Word. That's a great doctrinal statement. That's a collection of great doctrinal truths. Today's message is one that is very practical. But you notice how it's tied on to that previous statement there. God has manifested what He has done for us. How? Through preaching. So for God's children to know what God has done for them fully, they have to hear what? They have to hear preaching. To hear preaching, you have to have whom? A preacher. And so it's a natural flow from God's eternal truths to how we learn about that, to who is to teach God's people about what God has done for us. And so today, the primary thought that we want to consider is the necessity of gospel ministers in our lives and also the qualifications of the people who, the men that God would permit to speak in His name. And by the way, as I studied this this week, I, I really tried to find something else. Lord, do I really need to talk about this? Because it's a convicting thing for me to talk about the role and the responsibility and the qualifications of a gospel minister. There's not a minister who is honest and true who reads this and does not become convicted. So if you're thinking, why is this important? We'll talk about why it's important for you in a moment. Just understand that as it is important for you, it's convicting for me because as a minister, we so often feel to come up short. I don't know that there's a, an honest minister in the world that feels like he really does a good job of this, either in the pulpit or out of the pulpit, we really struggle with feelings of inadequacy when we read the Word and we see the patterns of these great men of God that went before us, men who devoted so many hours of every day to preaching the Word, who lived in cultures that were far different than ours. We do feel very convicted when we read the qualifications of a minister. As we notice in our first verse for today, as well as in the title of today's message, Things That Are Wanting, there were things that were lacking here in the island of Crete. There was work that needed to be done. Paul had appointed Titus to this work. He had left him there. He had sent him there. And Titus was to go about in this community and ordain people to preach the word. This would be as good of a time as any to talk about the fact that in the New Testament framework of things, if a man felt a call to preach, which we will talk about today, Paul doesn't send Titus into this community to recruit men to send to university. 
He doesn't send Titus in with all these pamphlets to go and give curious men who might want to preach the gospel a little information about a seminary somewhere. But Paul gave this responsibility to Titus. Titus, you personally go and ordain men to the office of elder. Encapsulated in that command was the finding of these men, the discerning of their gift, the trying of their gift, the vetting of their qualifications, their training as ministers, and eventually their ordination as ministers. It wasn't that Titus just comes into a community and he says, well, you look like a nice guy. Let's lay hands on you and ordain you and then just turn you loose to it and whatever happens, happens. No, there were strict qualifications and in other places we find qualifications such as apt to teach, meaning that this man has to be instructed in the Word and he's got to be able to teach the Word to those that are in his congregation, those that are in the flock of God at the location at which he teaches and preaches. The minister has a lot of responsibilities, and so Paul gives great qualifications to identify who would be ordained. But I want you to understand that this is a process And this man of God, Titus, has been left in charge of this work in this community. I meet a lot of people, and online there's there's just so many Facebook groups that I'm in, and I meet so many good godly men, and it's such a shame to me that for a man to feel qualified or be accepted as qualified to preach, it requires him to move away somewhere among strangers, live in a dorm, study under professors, who knows if they're sound or not, to have the qualifications to come back to a church, maybe even the church he was raised at, and preach the gospel. God's method of raising ministers, just like God's method of converting his children and God's method of training families and everything else, is the local church. And so what I like to share with people that are maybe new to us and unfamiliar with the way we do things, this church, Flint River Primitive Baptist Church, if God ever raises up someone who says, I feel a call to preach, I feel a call to pastor, I want to do this, I feel burdened in my soul to do this, this church is the seminary. This church is the institution to train any man who comes up in this church with a burden to preach the gospel. Who is the headmaster of this seminary? Well, Christ, but who's the professor that's going to be teaching that individual? That would be the pastor and other elders who might be here. We used to have a plurality of elders here. It's hard to find, it's hard in our day for churches, every church to have pastors. And so we don't have a plurality of elders. I wish we did. If we did, I would probably recommend that they go pastor one of the many churches that don't have a pastor because it would be better for a flock somewhere else to be fed than for me to maintain an entourage here. Churches need pastors, which is something we'll consider today, the importance of the gospel ministry, things that are wanting, things that are lacking. There's a need for ministers. Paul has sent Titus here for this work, to find them, vet them, train them, and eventually ordain them. From that statement, we learn that ministers are also to be what? They are to be ordained. 
For me to be a gospel minister, I have to be ordained to go about the full work. And we'll talk about the full work today. With ordination comes this title of elder or bishop. It enables me to pastor. It enables me to administer the ordinances as they are found in the New Testament. Until ordination, I cannot administer the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper because it was only elders in Scripture who administered the ordinances. And so Paul leaves him here and gives him this great work. Now, as far as how this applies to us today, it's important for us in two ways. Number one, we need to understand our need of preaching. And you notice I said our and not your need of preaching. I need preaching. I need preaching. We all need preaching. Preaching is one thing that feeds our souls. It's interesting, me personally, I may want junk food, but this experience happened to me a couple of weeks ago. Rachel brought home this southwestern salad and, and cooked it, and as I start eating the greens, you know, Brother Ben does not eat greens unless it's like green candy. I don't eat a lot of greens. Well, I start eating it, and I'm like, wow, this is really good. And I start eating it faster and faster, and I can't get enough of it. I'm just shoveling it in. And that was my body telling me, hey, genius, you need to eat some greens. I may have wanted junk food, but my body's telling me when I'm eating it, this is what you need. There have been times that we all can, I think, sympathize with that. We begin eating something and our body says, this is something you stand in need of. This is something that you need. Even if we don't realize it, we need to feed our born-again souls with the preaching of the Word. We need it to strengthen us and encourage us and feed us. There have been times when I didn't think I needed preaching. I'm not interested in it. I've got so many things to do. And I hear a message either in person or online, and my soul begins to be fed. And in that moment, I realize, wow, why was I starving myself? Now, there's plenty of things that I might have consumed. I may have consumed social media. I may have consumed the news. I may have consumed sports. And all of that amounts to a bucket of Twinkies, which, by the way, is very good because you gave me a bucket of Twinkies a couple of months ago and I ate every single one of them. Rachel keeps me a box of Twinkies on the left side of my recliner at home. And every day I'll reach down. I only have one. Reach down in my box of Twinkies, eat my Twinkie. So anyway, if you're ever wondering what is it that Brother Ben would like for us to bring him at church, that's on the top of the list. Butterfingers and Twinkies. I consume plenty of media, news, sports, social media, junk. What I really needed was the meat and potatoes of God's Word. And in times when my soul is being fed, I realize how much I need preaching. We need to understand our need of preaching, number one. Number two, we need to understand the requirements of men that they are to meet to be qualified to this work. Why do we need to understand that? Because God did not establish seminaries to qualify men. He gives that burden to the local church. We need, 
as a church to understand the requirements of the gospel ministry because it is our responsibility to recognize them, to train them, and eventually to authorize them through ordination. To be very clear, before a man can be ordained to this work, he must feel a call to preach. Now, there are various gifts and callings that God has given His church. There are gifts of exhortation. There are some gifts of teaching where a man may say, I don't really have a burden to pastor churches. I don't feel like I'm going to explode if I'm not preaching the gospel on Sunday. By the way, that's how I feel. If I'm not preaching the gospel on Sunday, you have a fire in your bones. It's like new wine that's in a bottle that's ready to just burst. Scripture uses those metaphors for the desire we have, the burden we have to preach. Maybe there are folks, and undoubtedly there are good good men in the church who have a desire to teach some, but don't feel this burden to preach. And we have room for those gifts in the church. One thing that we're going to start back as soon as possible is our scripture reading prior to the sermon here at church. I missed that. We stopped it because of COVID, because... I didn't want to have to, you know, this space I have contaminated week in and week out, and it's just my space that I've contaminated. I didn't want to, not knowing what COVID was and how we deal with it, we, I didn't want to have to continually sanitize the mics and podiums and things like that that we use, knowing more about what we know about it. I think we're going to start that back at ASAP so we can hear the Psalms read for us on Sunday. That is a teaching opportunity for people. There are many teaching opportunities for men in the church. As we'll see from Titus chapter 2, there's a responsibility for older women to teach younger women some things, to disciple them, to mentor them. There's lots of teaching to take place in the church. What we're talking about today is when a man feels the call to preach and he thinks, if I don't do this, I'm literally going to die. Now, You may not understand or sympathize what that feels like, but that's the way we feel as preachers. If I don't do this, I am going to die. The world will end. The ground will open and swallow me. A whale will take me to the bottom of the ocean if I don't do this. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. And every preacher has that feeling in his soul If I don't do this, I am going to be of all men most miserable. I have to do this. I must do this. I cannot stop doing this. And the call to preach will feel like that. To be clear again, God must call the man to preach. We can't simply say, this is a nice fella, let's ordain him and see what happens. Disastrous things have happened in church history when churches attempted that. I know churches who have picked deacons that way. You know, this brother's a nice guy. He's not that active in church. Let's ordain him and see if he's a little more active. Now, you may think I'm crazy. I've heard that sentence. I have heard that sentence, and I'm like, you know, I don't think this is going to end the way you think it's going to end. (laughs) It's not going to work that way. A deacon must first be what? Proved. He's got to be doing the work before he's ordained. The gospel minister, likewise, must demonstrate through preaching, that he has been gifted by God to proclaim the word of God, the gospel. He has to preach to you for you to know that he has been called to preach. The church recognizes this and 
sets him aside for ordination. They call for a presbytery, and the presbytery, a plurality of elders, presbyteros, the word for elder, they will lay hands on him and they will ordain him to that work. Just a note before moving on into the work of the ministry, in the Bible, there were only preaching elders. Sometimes today, organizations have pastors and bishops and preachers, and then they have elders and then they have deacons, and elders are more of the administrative role. In the Bible, elders were preachers. Elders are preachers. And so in Scripture, you don't find ruling elders and teaching elders. No, it's all the same office. The elders that bear rule are those that have preached the good word of God to you. And so the elder is the preacher, is the pastor, is the teacher, is the bishop, etc. We find the synonymous usage of these two terms, elder and bishop, here in Titus chapter 1. Notice Paul leaves Titus here in Crete to ordain elders in every city. And then he comes down to verse 7 and says, For a bishop must be blameless. Now there's another point of clarification. Within three centuries, bishops had grown into an overseer position over multiple churches, with elders being the pastors of local churches. But originally, as we see here in Titus chapter 1, the elder is the bishop. Because he says, I've left you here to ordain elders, for a bishop must be blameless. Now this word for bishop also translates overseer in the book of Acts chapter 20. So the elder is the bishop. The bishop is the overseer. The word bishop also can mean superintendent. This is the person that God has placed within a congregation to perform the work of the ministry. And I'm resisting the temptation to jump ahead to that point now. But this is the person that God has placed in a church to deal with the issues, to do the work of the ministry. So let's begin looking at the crucial nature of the work, and then lastly we'll consider together the qualifications of ministers. I hope that we can fit all of this in today's message. The work and the qualifications could be messages all to themselves. The gospel minister has a very important work, and it's called that in Paul's writings to Timothy. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Now along those lines, we read in the qualifications, he must also not be self-willed, meaning that his desire to the office of a bishop isn't one that he came up with himself, but it's a burden that God has given him. God gives us burdens, and he's given every one of you gifts and callings in his church to use in his kingdom for his glory and the betterment of his people in general. Every single one of you. You say, well, what is, what is my individual gift? Read Romans chapter 12 and read some of the chapters in 1 Corinthians about gifts and you see several types of gifts. Find yourself on that page and then get busy in that gift that God has given you. This is one gift that God has given men, but there are many gifts in the church. He has a very important work, the gospel minister. A church can meet without an elder. A church can meet without an elder. If I ever have a sudden illness on Sunday morning and there's nobody to call to help, then you'll meet, you'll pray, you'll sing, you'll read Scripture. We've got several men here who can bring a lesson from Scripture. They'll present the Word of God to you and you will have a church service. 
But the church cannot permanently function without a gospel minister. Why is that? The duties and responsibilities of the pastor are needful for the continuation of a church in a location. Let's begin looking at the work. First of all, it's the responsibility of the pastor to preach the gospel. Paul would write to Timothy, preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. By the way, that's not all fluffy stuff, is it? Reprove, rebuke, exhort, that involves correction. That means that the God-called minister, if he sees a problem in an individual's life or in the church at large, he has the responsibility to tell them, this is not right, it's destructive, and I'm worried about you. And that's absolutely appropriate and fine. Don't get mad at preachers when they preach on sin issues. Don't get mad at preachers when they tell you something from the pulpit, from God's Word, and you say, well, I'm guilty of that. That makes me mad. Well, he might be guilty of it too, and he's convicted while you're mad. There was a preacher years ago that told this story in a sermon during the handshake after church one Sunday. A man came up to the pastor in the handshake, and he says, I feel like you're just preaching to me. And the preacher said, well, I was. (laughs) Who else am I preaching to? Preaching to you. And I'm not targeting you, but if I preach something and the Holy Spirit leads me to a text that convicts you, praise God. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's needed. We need that. We need preaching for the church to continue. Now, number one, we need preaching because preaching leads to conversion. Now, to be very clear, the Holy Spirit must regenerate someone. I cannot regenerate someone through my preaching. I'd walk around regenerating everybody. You know, if I just had that power, let me just preach to you and regenerate you. I don't have that power any more than I have power to raise the dead in the cemetery down there in downtown Huntsville. You know, if I had power to raise the dead, imagine how popular I would be during COVID-19 when we've got 350,000 people in this country dead. You know, we wouldn't have anybody dead near here. I'd go around raising all the dead. I don't have that power. God must quicken before I, through the Spirit, through preaching, can convert. God must quicken before I, through the Preaching, enabled by the Holy Spirit, can convert. The Spirit regenerates. We convert through preaching the gospel. Now, by the way, you could be converted by reading the gospels. There's lots of people who have been curious and picked up a Bible and read it and suddenly became so compelled that they found a church to go to. But in general, God uses the preaching of the gospel to convert people as disciples. As we think about conversion and the importance of preachers, conversion is equated to discipling people, especially in a non-Christian culture. To convert is to disciple. To disciple is to convert. Now, in America today, there 
is a very popular form of thought that discipling and converting are two different things. And you might convince somebody to say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but then you leave and they never go to church. They never hear the word. They never hear preaching. They're never baptized. They never take communion. That is not what Scripture presents about evangelism, conversion, discipling, etc. We're to go and to preach. What does he say in Matthew 28? We're to teach, we're to baptize, and we're to teach. As we go, we teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And then what do we do? We continue teaching them everything that we have been commanded, and lo, he's with us under the end of the world. Amen. You cannot in Scripture separate the concept of evangelism with discipling people. What do I mean by discipling people? The word teach in Matthew 28 as he instructs the disciples to go, the eleven, the preachers, to go and to teach and to baptize, that word there means to disciple. It is our responsibility to find people, to preach to them, and as they receive the word as it is preached, we are to baptize them as they confess Christ, and we further instruct them from that point on in the Lord, from the Word. It's discipling. Discipleship is something that is so neglected in this country today. A dear friend of mine is a, a member of another denomination, and his great burden is discipling. And so he's not a preacher per se. He just teaches, and he'll meet with people who are newer converts to Christianity in general, and he will disciple them. Who is Jesus? Where was Jesus born? What is the nature of the Trinity? And I'm sure some of the things that he says to them might be a little different than the way that we would understand it and believe it and proclaim it, but he's attempting to explain to them the fundamentals of the faith to train them, to teach them. We have a famine for teaching in our country today. We don't have a famine for speeches. We don't have a famine for videos or articles or blogs or books, but we do have a famine for good biblical teaching. And it's our goal here to disciple you, to teach you. That's what we're doing today. We're discipling you. We're teaching you some aspect of what God would have us to understand about ourselves, about Him, about the church, etc. In a non-Christian world, it's interesting, and you see this in the Gospels and in Acts, you're preaching the Word to uh, people who've never heard about Jesus. And so you preach Jesus, they hear about Him, Because of the Holy Spirit in their heart, they're compelled to Him. Their hearts burn within them because of Him. And they say, we want to follow this Jesus of Nazareth, as we read in Acts chapter 2. Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Repent and be baptized. In America today, everyone has heard about Jesus. And so sometimes we find people who already believe in him, but they haven't been properly discipled. And so we preach to them and they are discipled and they follow him and they learn about him, even though they may have believed in him for years and years before coming under your teaching. I like to draw a distinction between evangelism and discipling in our country in that day and age for that reason. There are a lot of people who have already been evangelized in the sense that they love Jesus, they've just not been taught, and in that case, we disciple them. 
Evangelism, you might think of, is when you go to someone who's never even heard about Jesus and you preach to them the gospel, and they say, I believe, because God has worked to work a grace in their heart, and then you take them, you baptize them upon that profession, and they are to follow him and be instructed. Who is to do this work? Gospel minister. The gospel minister. Preaching the gospel also, not only does it convert, disciple, preaching the gospel strengthens, it trains, and it even works towards our sanctification. Notice this from the book of Ephesians. As you talk about God giving gifts unto men, we want to begin every message and go to Christ as quickly as we can. So let's tie Christ so richly into this message We read that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, Ephesians 4, verse 6, one God, one Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. We have these gifts through Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, whom? Christ. He led captivity captive, and he gave gifts unto men. What sort of gifts? Ministerial gifts. Now, there's a parenthetical statement in verses 9 and 10. Let's skip to verse 11, read around the parentheses. He gave gifts unto men, and he gave some apostles. Whom? Christ gave men apostles. And some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Christ has led captivity captive and ascended up on high and has given gifts unto men... He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Notice the comma there, pastors and teachers are between marks of punctuation. And so the pastor is the teacher is the pastor. And so sometimes you hear pastor slash teacher, and that's fine. That's the responsibility that we have. Which also tells us if a man is not teaching, he's not doing his job. That means that I have to say something that you need to hear from the Word, but I need to say it in a way that you learn. Sometimes we get all caught up on flamboyance and emotion and you might call it fireworks in the pulpit, you know, getting in a big way for the sake of being emotionally uplifted. But if teaching has not happened, if teaching has not happened, then the work has not been fully done. I want to excite you. And last week when we talked about sovereign grace, I hope it excited you. And there are times I might get loud. There are times that I might get animated. But if I'm not teaching, that's something that I'm commanded to do. You're to be taught. This is why we go through entire books of the Bible together, so you learn things that you might not know. He's given these gifts unto men to what end? Verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 4. Let's look at verse 12. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry... For the edifying of the body of Christ, the word edifying means building up, building up of his body. He is our head. We are his body. We belong to him the way that a wife belongs to a husband, her head. We belong to Christ. And he has given the ministry that we would be perfected, matured, that we would be edified, built up. The word edify means to build up. I want the messages that you hear to build you up, to instruct you. 
we're a spiritual house. You can look at that from a couple of perspectives. Individually, I want you to be built up and trained and discipled and taught and learn more and more about God and what He's done for you and what He expects of you. But at the same time, I want the church in general to be built up here at this location where we gather in more of His children, we add more and more lively stones, and we know that when we add, it is the Lord who is adding, the Lord added daily. But God builds when we go and we sow seed and we water the seed that is sown. The church is to be built up till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him in all things, which is the head, even Christ." We'll leave off our reading there and back up a little bit. Till we all come in the unity of the faith, we have something in this church that unifies us, though we might have different opinions, different backgrounds, different educations, different occupations. We might have people of every different persuasion of this world as far as worldly opinions and understandings are concerned. And yet we have something that unifies us, that is greater, that transcends anything else in this world, and that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've said it many times, we ought to have more in common with a Kenyan who loves Jesus and pronounces God's sovereign grace than we have with an American, capitalistic, conservative unbeliever. Now, there's a lot of people in this, in the, you know, I'm a conservative. There's a lot of people in conservative media who do not name the name of Christ. I ought to have more in common with Elder Martin Agnani or the late Elder Obey than I have with some of these political figures But which of those in our circle do we tend to gravitate towards more? The ones that agree with us politically. And that's a great shame. We ought to have more in common with believers than we do unbelievers that we might agree with on sports and politics and all sorts of other things. Understand that the church has thrived under monarchies. Did you know the church is thriving today in the underground? When I say the church, I mean Christianity is thriving in the underground and communist China today, we ought to have more in common with those people than we do some unbeliever that agrees with us on issues that relate to our lives as Americans because we are to be unified by the faith, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. God has given ministry that we would come in the unity of the faith. What's one part of today's message that I want you to get? That we be unified around the one thing that matters, and that is our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we can find unity there, doesn't everything else in this world pale in comparison? Yes, we need to find unity around Christ. It's the only real unity you'll ever have in this world. 
the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. The word perfect here has reference to maturity. Under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we be henceforth no more children. Now, I love that he doesn't say that we be henceforth no more unregenerates, but children. Understand that being a son of God is a work of God by God's grace. But you might be a babe in Christ needing to grow to spiritual maturity. The work of the minister is to take that newborn babe of Christ and teach him and nourish him and grow him so that he is mature in the faith, no more tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But we do what? We speak the truth in love that you might what? Grow. I'm interested in your growth. Personal and collective. I am interested in your growth. There's hardly anything more exciting for me to see than the growth of people that I'm sharing the Word of God with. To see a light bulb go off in your mind. To see you rejoice in a truth and put that truth into practice. What an invigorating thing for a gospel minister to see that something he has said actually worked in the lives of a person. We speak the truth in love that you may grow. As we think about speaking the truth in love, Paul described his ministry to the Thessalonians as a nurse cherishing her children. So was he with them in the gospel. Nurse there having reference to a nursing mother. A mother nurses her children. The same concept is used by Paul to describe his teaching of the congregation there at Thessaloniki. He instructs them, he feeds them, he nourishes them through the preaching of the Word of God. He gives them milk that they one day will be able to digest the meat of God's Word. So we have 10 minutes left, and that's halfway through the first point. Methinks next week we'll be on the qualifications of the gospel ministry, and that's okay. We've got all year together. Another work of the gospel minister in preaching, he strengthens, he trains. That word teach means to disciple. Through the administration of the truth, they find growth in their sanctification. What does the word sanctify mean? It means set apart for holy usage. John chapter 17 and verse 17. Jesus is praying to the Father before his crucifixion, and he says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The truth sanctifies us. Now, to be very clear, there are people that mesh all sanctification together under one umbrella. There is sanctifying that God Himself alone has done for you. God the Father sanctified you before the foundation of the world when He set you apart for holy usage in the covenant of grace. God the Father sanctified you. I believe Jude speaks to that end. The Son has legally, positionally sanctified you when He died for you upon the cross of Calvary, setting you aside for holy usage. The Holy Spirit in the new birth has vitally sanctified you 
as he quickened you when you were dead in trespasses and in sins. You have been sanctified. But a regenerated person grows and grows in their sanctification as they hear the truth. Scripture, in Paul's writings to Timothy, instructs us to purge our lives of unfruitful, unprofitable behaviors and activities that we might be a sanctified vessel, meet or appropriate for the master's use. That means that through the truth, John 17, 17, and our response to it, we grow in sanctification. In a sense, we sanctify ourselves, not in the sight of God, but as it relates to our own individual lives, so that we are vessels to be used by God for His purposes. We find sanctification. A good way for you to understand sanctification and, and a way for you to go and further learn about this concept This is a ceremonial term. It's an Old Testament term that's used often. I would encourage you this week, as we think about how we have sanctification through the truth and the ministers of the gospel preach the truth, look up in a concordance the word sanctify, sanctify the various variations of that word from the Old Testament and see how it was used, and you will find insight into sanctification in your own life. There are days that were sanctified by God. There are items in the temple of God that were sanctified by God. There are people in the Old Testament who were sanctified by God to perform certain religious duties unto Him. Again, it means to set one apart for religious usage. We are sanctified through God's truth. We learn what God would have us to do in our lives. We hear His will for our lives. We find conviction as we hear messages about His grace and His goodness and His salvation for us for our sins. And in all of that, we grow and we grow and we grow. And that growth is our daily practical sanctification. Father, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is true. Next, the work of the ministry is to oversee and shepherd the flocks of Christ, the flock of God that is among him, you might say. In the book of Acts chapter 20, these are the words of the Apostle Paul as he meets with the elders of the church of Ephesus. And he speaks to them. He goes to Miletus. He sent to Ephesus. He calls for the elders of the church, Acts 20 and verse 17. He meets with them and he tells them that I've kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but showed you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are only two marks that I have made, and I've shared this with you many times in my Bible. I don't write my Bibles. A lot of men do. I don't have a problem with that at all. I have a a Bible someone bought me from unclaimed baggage years ago. It's a Thompson chain reference, and whoever left that in a plane or in the luggage 
was a Bible reader because most verses in that Bible are highlighted with different colors, and I wish I knew his color coding system. Blue, yellow, orange, all of these different colors. All these notes. There are two marks in my Bible that I've made. There's some yellow crayon that one of the children's left. One of the children left, but as far as marks that I've made, both are in the book of Acts chapter 20, verse 20 and verse 27. I've kept back nothing that was profitable. Verse 27, I've not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. We preach the full counsel of God if we do our duty. As Paul would write to them, he would say, "...to take heed therefore unto themselves and all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers." The minister is to oversee the flock. Now, there are administrative duties that we have to do as pastors. And in this country, we have more administrative responsibilities that we have to do because of legalities and things such as that. But when he was exhorting them to be overseers, take those two words and break them into two, overseers. It's a compound word. See over. Or to look over the flock. It's the role of the minister to look out over the flock of God and when he sees something that might be damaging them, to warn them. Don't get mad when the minister warns you of a danger he sees in the culture. I spent the first several months of this year, well, no, last year, Happy New Year. I spent the first several months of 2020 warning people about dangers in our culture. It's not a way to win friends and influence people. But I saw great dangers. We look over. We warn. We nurture. We feed. We encourage. We point you to Christ. We try to take your focus off the things of this world and direct it back to where it ought to be. We oversee. The word oversee translates from the same word as bishop, by the way. And it has reference, its niche, this word, is in the pastoral aspect of ministry. Not merely as an elder, but an overseer, a bishop, superintendent. We look over the flock of God. I had lunch with a young man this week that I met in a Facebook group, and he's, he's from Arab. He goes to a, a different type of Baptist church, and he's leaving to go to an institution of learning to begin a, a ministry. And I was talking to him, and I said, look, the people that you're going to be, and we, we just told stories, and we talked video games, and we talked celebrity preachers, and it was a very enjoyable lunch. But I told him, look, pastoring is hard. There, there will be years that will take years off your life. <laughs> There will be nights that you're awake at 3 in the morning worrying about people in your congregation. That's the burden of a minister. And I mean, you've seen my weight fluctuate here a good 30 pounds worth. When, when I start losing weight, you know something's happening in the background. You might be thinking, well, things must be pretty good right now. No. I sat there for a month with COVID not doing anything and, and put on 5 to 10 pounds. So anyway, I told him, you've got to remember no matter how hard things are, how difficult things are, in the battles, I said, look, you will be bitten by sheep. 
You will be kicked by sheep. You'll be attacked by sheep. But you got to remember that these are Jesus' sheep. You care for them. You look after them. They're not your sheep. That takes a burden off of us. These aren't my sheep. I'm watching his sheep. I'm caring for his sheep. With that perspective, it gives you the endurance. It gives you the burden off your shoulder that this is all about your love for Christ and your love for his people and his love for his people and their nourishment and their protection. I said, brother, these are God's sheep that you will be feeding And no matter what happens, no matter how difficult it is, remember, you serve him, you preach his word, and you care for his sheep to the best of your ability. The minister is to oversee and shepherd the flock of God. Sometimes it's hard to shepherd sheep. Sometimes it looks more like herding cats. Sheep are not... Very secure animals, they wander off, they're vulnerable to predators. This is a responsibility that we have as under-shepherds. Acts twenty twenty nine. For I know this, after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. It's also the responsibility of the minister to defend from false teachers. There are people who will come into a church to propagate heresy and lead away others after their own selves, to draw away disciples after them, as he says in verse 30. And it is the responsibility of the pastor, the under-shepherd, the elder, the bishop, to see that, discern that, and say, that is not tolerated here. That is not tolerated here at all. Have there ever been times where that's happened? Yes. Yes. If someone ever begins spouting off rank heresy here. Please do not get upset at me if I call that out. I have to. I have no choice because I serve Christ. And if a heresy is preached, it's destructive. I've got to be the one who answers to Christ about what is preached. Along these lines, it's also the responsibility, the work of the ministry to proclaim God's wrath on the wicked. Jesus has his ministers go preach the gospel publicly to be a savor of life unto life, but death unto death, as he says in 2 Corinthians. And so part of our responsibility is to proclaim God's general wrath among, or upon rather, the wicked. Does that mean they're going to turn from it? No, it's going to make them mad, and sometimes they attack you. Which brings us to some of the qualifications of a minister, that he must not be a striker, he must not be soon to anger. There have been times... When I have been publicly preaching, where people will come up to me and scream in my face and threaten violence against me and curse me. If if you're uh, interested in that sort of thing, we can go outside the abortion clinic here in town because that's usually where it happens the most. I mean, people lose their minds. It's my responsibility to proclaim God's wrath upon wickedness. Next, the minister of the gospel has the responsibility of ordaining other ministers. I know that time is now away, and so we'll be very brief with these comments. When Paul wrote to another man of God, Timothy, 
He tells them, neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Presbytery, which is a plural form of the word for elder. Ministers are ordained, he writes to Titus, to ordain men in every city. Ministers are ordained by other ministers. We have a successive laying on of the hands from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next of the gospel ministry. It's crucial for us to have ministry so we can ordain the next ministry. It's one of our responsibilities. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul references the fact that he had laid hands on Timothy. I put you in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. What does he have reference to there? Ordination, ordaining him. Now lastly, but not least, we need ministers because the minister is to administer the ordinances. We need elders because elders are the people who have been qualified by God to administer the ordinances. What are the ordinances? Baptism. And the Lord's Supper. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus instructs his 11 disciples. Why are there 11? Because Judas was the 12th and he committed suicide after he betrayed Jesus. He hanged himself. And from Acts chapter 1, we learn that after he hanged himself, he fell because no one would touch him. And he fell down a bluff and landed. And it says he burst asunder. You say, that's pretty gross. I don't want to hear about it. Well, Scripture records it for you to hear about it. And it was called the field of blood. Judas is replaced by Matthias, but at this point in Matthew chapter 28, there's only 11. What's important about that point? There are only 11 people there. Though there are 120 gathered on the day of Pentecost, and there's over 500 that witnessed him resurrected before his ascension, according to 1 Corinthians 15, there are only 11 men When Jesus says this, what does he say? Go, therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Who is to baptize? The gospel minister is authorized to baptize through that verse. In Scripture, the only people who were commanded or depicted administering the ordinances, not receiving the ordinances, but administering the ordinances were men who had been ordained to that work, the work of the gospel ministry. We need preachers because we need baptisms. Now along those lines, what better of a way to start 2021 than by taking up your cross and following him in gospel obedience and being baptized in his name? We have a minister here who would enjoy baptizing you, and we would exhort you, if you've been converted, if you've been discipled, to take up your cross and to follow Him in gospel obedience. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for giving us gifts. Lord, and we know there are so many gifts that You've given us in Your church. There are gifts of preaching and teaching and exhortation and ministry and giving and showing mercy and loving and feeding and Thank you, Father, for the gifts that we've all been given. Thank you for the gift of preaching. As one who tries to preach, but as one certainly who needs to hear preaching, thank you, Lord, that you feed our souls. 
Oh, Lord, you don't leave us hungry. You didn't just leave us here in the world to starve, but you've given us spiritual food through your word and the preaching of it. Thank you for food, messages that feed our hungry souls. We pray, Father, that you forgive us of our many sins. Help us to do this more effectively. Help us to do this better. Help us to feed these people, these flock that belong, uh, this flock that belongs to Jesus, these sheep that belong to your son. Help us to feed them better. We pray, Father, that their souls would be nourished, that their minds would be taught, that they would grow, that they would be edified, that they would be sanctified. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.